had never crossed my mind was Amy Hoy was talking about you don't have to work 40 hours a week. You can negotiate four days a week and get paid the same. I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to Indie Rails. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Indie Rails. Today, our special guest is Monsef Beliamani. Hey, Monsef. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hey, Jess, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Hey, welcome to the show. For people that don't know you, would you mind giving a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Monsef Belyamani, like Jeremy said. I'm known as the Ruby on Mac guy. My main specialty is helping people set up and maintain a proper Ruby dev environment on their Mac. Over the past 11 years, I've helped hundreds of thousands of people through my free tutorials and scripts. And that experience led to the creation of my paid product called Ruby on Mac. And I launched it about a year ago on February 6th, 2022 to be exact. And I ended up getting five orders on the first day, all from organic traffic. And now I have a little over 1300 happy customers, which is pretty amazing. Now, before I became a full-time solopreneur, I spent about eight years in civic tech where I worked on open source Rails projects. I shaped engineering best practices and helped those companies save $100,000 per year through automation, speeding up test suites, improving developer happiness and productivity, and improving code quality and maintainability. And now I'm offering this expertise to grow my consulting business. Rewind us back to how did you get started in all this? Like, What was your upbringing? Did you always want to be a programmer? Because I think you got your start in programming first. Did you always want to own a business? Like sort of take us through that process. So I'm originally from Morocco, but I went to an American school. And so it made sense for me to come to the US for college. I went to UVA, University of Virginia. And because the principal of my high school in Morocco was very good friends with the Dean of International Studies at UVA. And so he arranged for me to stay in this small place on campus. So what did you originally plan to study? I had so many interests in high school, I couldn't really choose. But my dad, who was actually a doctor, <laughs> he always like tinkered with electronics at home, whether it was a satellite dish or whatever. And so like, I think that somehow influenced me. And so I chose electrical engineering, but also probably like looking ahead in the future, like what's going to give me a good job, maybe probably some kind of engineering. So I, I said, okay, let me choose engineering. And then what kind of engineering? I thought, well, of all the types of engineering, maybe electrical, just because from my dad. And so that's what I ended up picking, although I didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> I don't think I did any programming. I mean, I know we had computers at home. They were like Windows-based. So we played games mainly. But once I got to college, that's when Netscape, I think, was first released. And so I started learning about HTML. And so I think that's when the bug got me first. And also it was out of necessity. So during college, I met a friend and we were making music together because I was getting more into DJing as well. And then we started producing music together. And then when we were about to graduate, we thought, well, we want to promote our music. We need a website, right? So we figured out how to build a website, just basic HTML, CSS and JavaScript. And from there, discovered PHP. And that's actually when I built my online record store. Yeah. And so, but to go back a little bit, so... So when we graduated, you know, we had to look for a job and I was working with a temp agency and they said, hey, we have a, an opening with America Online. Have you done QA before? I said, I, if you mean like 
making sure that my C++ code that I wrote in college worked. Sure, right? So then I went and interviewed and they liked me and I ended up like liking it, doing like really good job. At first, it was testing the Mac version of AOL. And I think specifically the browser in the Mac version of AOL. That just sounds so funny. The Mac version of AOL. Yeah. <laughs> so you were working at AOL doing QA. Right. Exactly. Right. And so, yeah, I did a good job. I was finding bugs. So the first contract was just a few months. So then I went back home for winter break and I didn't have anything lined up. But then when I came back, the same temp agency, they said, oh, the same group you worked with at AOL, they have another opening. So again, I got the second contract and then that eventually led them to give me a permanent position. I loved like finding bugs, making sure things were working great. And I was always like meticulous, high standard. So, you know, I was doing the programming on the side, just basically maintaining the DJ website. And then in 2003, I was like, well, I want to open an online record store. You know, I want to get records wholesale. And so I got a license and then I was like, well, how do I build an online record store? And so I remember searching for something like that, like how to build an online record store. And there was a tutorial on Macromedia's website. You know, back then it was Macromedia. It was literally like how to build an online record store with PHP, MySQL and Dreamweaver or something like that. And I was like, perfect, this is what I need. And so I used their tutorial and got a lot of the back end working. But then I wanted to integrate it with PayPal. And I wanted basically the whole experience to be on my website, people adding the card and everything. And only when you click checkout, then you go to PayPal. I didn't want to have those add to PayPal buttons. I just wanted to have everything. And so then I was like, but wait a minute, how do I get PHP and JavaScript to talk to each other? Because PayPal, like JavaScript. And I remember struggling for days. I was like, but finally, I just figured it out on my own. I was so happy and I got it working and it worked for a super long time. And then eventually discovered Ruby, I think in 2010. And back then, you know, Railscast and Code School, Greg Pollock and Wise Poignant Guide, you know, all of those great resources. And so that's how I learned. And, and I find that I learned by doing. So I like I tried in all these courses and also like Rails Tutorial, which at the time was building like a Twitter clone, I think. I don't know if he still does that. But then I was using Tumblr also at the time for like a fun blog. And there was an issue with, with like the tags. You could tag your posts, a category like hip hop or whatever, like I had music posts, let's say like hip dash hop, right? Or a person's name that they have a hyphen in their name, right? But there was a problem like if you tag the post with a hyphen, it would convert it to a space or something. So if you clicked on it, it wouldn't work. There was something, some weird bug with like tags with hyphens wouldn't work. And I sent the support request and, you know, I didn't hear back or they said they wouldn't fix it or something. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll fix it myself. And so I was like, okay, I'll build a Rails app to learn using their API. I learned how to use APIs. I will use OAuth. There was, I think, a gem for Tumblr. And so I was like, great, I can sign in now. And so... Now, let me fetch all of my Tumblr blogs because you can have multiple blogs on Tumblr, right? And then go through each of them, find any posts with tags and then whatever I had to do, whether changing the hyphen to a space or vice versa or something like that, just to go and fix everything, then push it back up. And I called it like fix my Tumblr tags. And that was my very first Rails app and it worked and it fixed everything. And like, great. <laughs> so this was all on the side, but actually that same year in 2012, I was working on mobile applications at AOLs. But then I got tired of just like pressing buttons and testing things. I wanted to like do more of the coding, especially since I was doing that on the side, learning Ruby, discovering Rails. So I was thinking like, is there a path for me? Is there a way to transition from QA to development? Instead of finding bugs, I want to be able to write the code and maybe like prevent the bugs. And so at the time, it was all just manual testing. We didn't have any automated tests. So I 
there was an opportunity for me to lead the effort to figure out how to do automated testing. So I said, yeah, I'll jump on it. And at the time, it was still kind of new. And so I did a bunch of research to see what tools were out there, cost, and also how easy they were to use. And the one that came out on top was called Kalabash, and it happened to also be based on Ruby. And the cool thing with Kalabash is, you know, it was very easy. You just had to set something up in your Xcode project, and then you could define everything in Ruby in a text file using the Cucumber syntax. And then it had all these helper methods to click, to scroll on the application. And the cool thing is that you could write it untethered, which was one of the very few apps. So you could set everything up, not just unplug your phone, just have it connected through Wi-Fi and then run the test. And so I would run around and show, hey, look, the test is running, it's clicking, it's doing things on the phone. And I convinced them, okay, this is the thing we should use. And it was open source and it was developed by these two Danish guys, I think. And so that was exciting. And also because I was learning Ruby on the side, I was like, oh, great. This tool is using Ruby. I can use that to learn some more. And then on top of that, I was like, okay, what's another way I can maybe stand out and help transition from QA to development? And I said, well, let me start a programming blog to share what I'm learning, especially like this whole like automated testing. And so I was like, okay, that's going to be one of my first posts is writing about this automated testing because it's very exciting. And so I was trying to choose how am I going to publish my blog? And at the time I was using WordPress. So eventually I converted my DJ site to WordPress, I don't know, 2006 or something. And but a lot of people were like saying bad things about WordPress. And a lot of people started talking about static sites and people had like their homegrown tools to do it. But I think at the time, Jekyll was already there. And what was that other one? Like a small... Uh, Middleman? Oh, yeah, okay, Middleman. Yeah. And also like a... I forget the name. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so I was looking at all of these. And so I said, okay, I want a static site. But also because static site involves programming, right? And so maybe that'll help even more. But the, the thing is, I was missing is I'm not a designer. I was never very good at styling. And I didn't want to search for themes and stuff like that. And then Octopress had just been recently released, I think. And it was based on Jekyll. But the selling point was that it comes with a good looking theme out of the box, right? It's like, oh, this looks nice. I'll, let me try that. And this was 2012. I think Snow Leopard was out or something. And so like, I go to install Octopress and it says, oh, you need Ruby. I forget what the version was, but it required a version of Ruby that I didn't have on my Mac yet. And so, and at that time I chose RVM and I tried it and it failed. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I can't even get my vlog started. And so that's <laughs> yeah. how this whole like, and I don't know what prompted me, but I started recording my computer Recording myself searching for answers and figuring things out. Screen recording yourself. Yeah, exactly. Right. Do yeah. like okay. troubleshooting. Why did you do that? Did you plan on publishing that or were you just, you wanted to just document your process? I think both. I really don't remember, but I know that once I spent several hours figuring things out, I knew that was going to be my first blog post. And at the time, there were other sites that had how to install Ruby, but they were always like missing steps. And finally, I figured out the recipe. And then having a QA background, I made sure that everything works and I had screenshots. You know, it was very detailed, very thorough, and it quickly became very popular. And I published it and that was my first blog post. And then people were like, oh my God, thank you for saving my day. <laughs> they were like, this is the best thing by far that I've ever found. And so that gave me the confidence. Oh, maybe I should write some more blog posts. But, you know, of course, at that time, it was, I didn't think of this as a business at all. It was just like, my goal was to get a job as a developer, right? 
And then eventually I ended up writing that blog post about using Calabash for automated testing. And that also became like, I think my second most popular post and that did well as well. And then AOL sent some of us to attend the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference in New York. The day that I went there happened to be the day that Todd Park and Stephen Van Rokel, Todd Park is a former CTO of the United States, and Stephen Van Rokel is a former CIO, like this is actually a CTO of the United States, and they were announcing the Presidential Innovation Fellowship Program. And so Todd Park is very energetic when he talks, and I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating. He was talking about innovation in the government, how to improve things for society. And then he mentioned that it was inspired by Code for America. I was like, oh, Code for America. That's a sounds interesting. Let me look them up. And so I started following Code for America on Twitter. And then they were announcing their fellowship as well. They had their application open. I'm like, oh, maybe I should apply. <laughs> but the problem was it was in San Francisco. You had to be there for like 11 months and it paid like thirty or $35,000. <laughs> You know, at the time at AOL, I was making like a hundred, a little over a hundred or something. I was like, oh, it's going to be a huge pay cut. <laughs> and I was like a few months away from getting married. Oh, man. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I talked to my fiance. We talked it over, looked at our budget because I didn't think that there was a path from QA to development at AOL. So I was like, well, let me look at other opportunities. And this was one that showed up. And one of the things that probably helped me get accepted was that blog post that I had and I could show that that it was popular. And actually at the time, it also started getting recommended on Stack Overflow and Hacker News. Oh, and also because of that blog post and my work on Calabash, the automated testing at AOL, Sauce Labs, actually, they came to visit AOL. And I talked to them about what I was doing. They're like, oh, well, we have a conference called Mobile Testing Summit. Do you want to come speak? I'm like, yeah. So the fellowship... We got accepted in October, I think, is when they sent the acceptance letters. But then the fellowship starts in January 2013. So and then the conference was, I think, in November or something like that. And so I was able to fly out there and give the talk. That was my very first talk outside of internal talks at AOL. It always amazes me when people publish a blog post or share something that they built and just how much that can change their lives. Yeah, for sure. Like for me, like writing just sharing what I learn, And also it helps me because it reinforces my learning. And also like I have really high standards. So when I write something, I want to make sure that it's correct. I don't write something that I don't understand. Like I wrote the definitive guide to installing Ruby. And I gave like four different ways to install Ruby and install gems on a Mac. And each step I, you know, I tested it to make sure that my commands were actually correct and I didn't miss anything. Like I'm always like very meticulous about that. It reminds me of Patio 11's concept of evergreen blog posts. Mm -hmm. write a post that's going to last a long time. And not that everyone has to do that or that all posts have to be evergreen. But when you do that, it becomes a resource that lasts for years instead of a week or two, something like that. That was where Ruby on Mac was born, right? Or yeah, yeah, the if foundation you want, yeah. The foundation, and, exactly. And so that was but 2012, it, 2013. And then mm -hmm. I think you said at one point, it, it took you 10 years to realize you had a product that you could sell. So when I was working on login.gov, I was contemplating staying at 18F, but that meant I would have to become a permanent employee. And, but this was around the time that Nate Berkopek released his book, you know, the Rails performance. I don't know if I was really thinking about business, but you know, it was maybe in the back of my head. And then I saw his experience. He made like $70,000 or 50, I don't know, some very decent amount of money from a book. And now, you know, he's grown it into workshops and whatnot. And I think he mentioned Amy Hoy, her book, JFS, you know, just F and ship. So I had heard of Amy Hoy before, maybe even when I was at AOL, 
So I started looking up, I think it was the, her website was like unicorn free at first. They had the 30 by 500 course back then, but now they became stackingthebricks.com. And so I started reading the articles there and I got back on their radar, signed up for their mailing list. And then of course they were promoting you know, the course, I think in 2018, right around that time, thinking more about the experience that I've had, maybe I can write a book or something like Nate and you did on code quality because that was kind of like my expertise. I was getting emails for the course and I was like, oh, you know, because it's, it's pretty expensive. It's like $2,000 course. And so I said, okay, I'm going to buy it. And actually, I remember one of the things that I had read from one of the Stacking the Bricks articles that had never crossed my mind was Amy Hoy was talking about, you don't have to work 40 hours a week. You can negotiate 32 hours a week, you know, four days a week, work week, and get paid the same. You know, she did that several times and I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. And so when actually, when I applied to trust, you know, I tried, I said, hey, I'm trying to start like my own business on the side. And so I want to spend more time doing that. So I was trying to say, well, can I only work for four days a week? And they said, no, sorry, it's not going to work, especially because it's like a consultancy, especially when you're working with government. Yeah. That's a great point, though, to bring up. Like, we've talked a lot about starting side projects and how to get yourself started. But that's one that doesn't come up that often is negotiating with your current employer to work a shorter work week and maybe even for the same pay or maybe for less pay. Yeah. I mean, since then, somebody created, a, I think, fourdayweek.io just to showcase jobs that do offer. And so more and more jobs are offering four-day work weeks. But I know that there's like a big demand for it now. And it's a competitive advantage for some companies when they offer that. So yeah, so I bought the course. I was doing it on the side, taking the course. So like two years after that, I think it was in 2020, is when I realized, hey, maybe I should ask people to sign up for my mailing list before they get the script. So I think between 2012, when I started the blog in 2020, I think I had like between 400 and 500 subscribers. And now I have like over 3,000. A lot of people came because of the script because it was a big pain point. But then, you know, some people would sign up with like bad word emails, like F you or just give me the F in script. I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's, 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 that's not the kind of audience I want, right? Because the whole point is like to build an audience that maybe wants to hear what you have to say. And I was like, maybe this is a wrong lead magnet. People are just interested in the script. Maybe they don't want to hang around. And also I realized that and at first, I, I thought it was beginners, but it's not. It's people from like up to 40 years of experience that have trouble installing Ruby. At the end of the day, people just want to work on an app or whether it's Rails or Jekyll or... And it's not just Rails. Ruby is used for all kinds of things, even like React Native and CocoaPods for iOS apps. Ruby is used as part of the stack of different tools. And so some people maybe might, are not necessarily Ruby as you just have to use Ruby for some other thing. As a dependency. Yeah. Exactly. So they just want their thing to work. And so I was like, oh, okay. So like my audience is very varied. And the one common point was that people were kind of like desperate for this. My script was the only thing that worked. They tried all these things and I was like, oh, well, if it's that good, maybe people would be willing to pay for it, right? So one of the things that the course 30 by 500, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, they have these terms. So like Safari, yeah, sales Safari. The sales Safari, yeah. Right. So you, you, the idea is you go observe people like in the wild, like at watering at holes. Watering holes, yeah. Exactly, right. <laughs> yeah. So like Reddit. Do you want to describe wherever. what that, yeah. 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 So basically first you choose your audience and you want to be part of that audience. So if like if you're a Rails developer, your audience should be Rails developers. You know, you want to be, Picking an audience that has nothing to do with what you do yourself, because you want to be, you know, a subject matter expert. 
But yeah, so the idea is you go and then you see what people are complaining about. And then for me, it was also feedback from people using the script. So that once you analyze these watering holes, then you write what they call e-bombs, so educational bombs, whether it's a blog post or a video, you know, it can take many different forms. But the idea is to solve the problem that you saw somebody have online and also in a non-spammy way, share it. Maybe like look at the rules of the subreddit you're in and see when you can you start posting or what type of stuff can you start posting or just be helpful, maybe not without linking to your site directly, just answer the question right there. And then I think there's also, I forget the term that Amy uses, but basically like a vortex. And as I started writing this blog post using what I've learned from the course, I was like, oh, well, this idea could create another blog post, right? So I have all these like links so that basically like they get sucked in. They start on one article, they go in another one and they go in another one. And so you have these links. And as I started writing, oh, they should know about this. For example, a lot of people would have problems with command not found. And so I was like, oh, I should write a blog post about how path works. If you get this problem, this is one of the reasons why, and this is how path works. The computer needs to know where to find the thing you want it to use. Because a lot of people either miss the step where they have to update their shell startup file or things like that. And so I explained that. And then I was like, oh, well, how do you know which shell you're using? That's another blog post. And that's actually <laughs> one, of my, one of my most favorite. I looked at my stats. I think the still the most popular is the how to install Ruby. In the top five where there is like either how to switch or how to tell which shell I'm using, something like that. So you get all these ideas and I started writing more just to be able to have this content and have people find it. Yeah, when I saw that I was getting interest and I was getting feedback from the script. So in October, 2021 is actually when I decided, okay, I think I can make this work. I have the information. I know that it's something people want. During the course that you sort of started becoming comfortable with this decision that this is something that I've been sort of given away and I've been writing about. And now I think is worthy of a product that I can sell. Was it during the course that you realized that? Yeah, yeah. During the course, while taking the course, while writing these e-bombs and interacting and doing sales safari and understanding, talking to my three users at the time, their pain points and just emailing them, hey, did it work for you? So I think it was January 2021, I think is when I switched to ConvertKit. And so I had an automation when people would get the script. I would follow up with them, say, hey, did it work for you? Or I would ask them, like, what are you using it for? And so based on that, you know, I realized that most people were using it either for Rails or Jekyll, and then some others for like CocoaPods. And so that gave me an idea, like, what pain points were there. Last year when I was at Trust, I had to learn Go. <laughs> and I was working on a project where they didn't use a framework. So it was like very frustrating. <laughs> because the Go ecosystem is not as robust as Ruby. You know, there's not like a gem for everything. They seem to like writing things on their own. It took just took so long. I was like, this would take like minutes with Rails. <laughs> but you know, we can just rewrite everything in Rails. But it was a great experience just being able to learn other program, just to be able to say, okay, well, I've tried Go. I know I don't like it. So maybe like that played a part that scratched my itch to try it on my own more. But it was a good salary. And so I was able to save you know, I looked at the budget and I said, okay, well, I want to have a column business. I want to start small. So I gave myself three years to grow to 100K per year. And so I and also I had the contract with San Mateo County. I was like, okay, I have that. So I know that's sure money there. And then I said, okay, so in 2022, I have to make 25K and then basically double like 2023, 50K and then 100K in 2020. From the Ruby on Mac. Yeah, from Ruby on Mac. So I left like late October, 2021. 
But I wanted some time to like regroup and figure out like my routine. And I wanted to start exercising more because with a day job and having to drop off the kids, school's like 30 minutes away and work eight hours, put in all the billable hours and everything. I didn't really have time. So I was like, okay, I want to start a habit of exercising. So like I said, okay, when I... Well, actually, another thing that I discovered through the Ready by 500, the Tiny Habits course which James Clear talks about in his book, Atomic Habits, but I think Tiny Habits came first. BJ Fogg, he's a Sanford researcher. The idea is basically you have these, I don't know what the term he uses, like maybe triggers or something. His example is like, after IP, I will do X amount of push-ups. And so actually I had started that when I first took the course, when I first discovered Tiny Habits through 30 by 500. And yeah, and actually it worked for me. I was doing it. I was increasing my push-ups. And, but then after a while, I stopped doing it. But then I had a routine because at the time, I was actually working from a co-working space. At the time, my kids' school was close to this co-working space. So instead of driving back home like 30 minutes, I had this routine, I would say, and when I go to the co-working space, I would pour myself a cup of tea. I will go to my desk and meditate for 30 seconds or whatever. I started small, one minute. And then after I meditate, I will go through my to-do list or whatever, and then keep doing that. And that worked well for a while. And then the exercise, it's been pretty consistent. So basically, when I get back home from dropping off the kids, I do either Peloton bike or like one of the Peloton strength exercises in the basement. Yeah, Jeremy and I have been talking a lot about that fitness and exercise. And it's not an optional thing. It's something that like we have to have or we want to have in our lives. Yeah, for sure. And another habit I picked up was writing every day on Obsidian. I just had like a daily notes and I started publishing them every day, whatever I was learning. I had like a home section, a business section, and just the research I was doing. I knew that I wanted to make Ruby on Mac paid. And I was doing research on things like, how am I going to distribute it? Is it going to be a private GitHub repo? Am I going to have to worry about like licensing and piracy and all that stuff? But I was like, let me just start really simple. Just make it a download, just a zip file that people download. And, and so when I was looking into it, like GitHub had a, if you want to invite people to a private GitHub repo as collaborators, because the other option is for public repos, when you invite a collaborator, they automatically have write access. But if you want them read only, I think it has to be under an organization on GitHub. And for organizations, there's like a 50 per day limit. You know, it's like... <laughs> Very ambitious. Like, what if I get more than 50 people? But then I don't want to have those. Like, this restriction. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like way under that. Like, I have an average of like, I don't know. I think the most I've gotten in a day is like seven orders or something. Or everybody always worries about the what ifs. I know. What if it times out and then, or not, I get rate limited. And so I'm like, okay, maybe that's not an option. So, like, maybe I'll just make it a zip file. I decided to use Paddle for the fulfillment. And the main reason for that is because of the tax compliance. And one thing I learned is that it's like really like complicated to be tax compliant when you're selling something, you know, digital products. If you're not using something like Paddle that acts as your merchant of record, if you're using Stripe, for example, you have to register basically every country. I mean, in the EU, they have like one place you can register for all of the EU, but then still, and in some places... You have to have like a, actually a local agent, I think, like maybe Japan is one of the, I forget, there's some countries. And the other thing is the threshold is like zero, like as soon as you make your first dollar, you owe taxes in the EU and maybe other countries too. In the US, it depends on the state, which is even more complicated. So like in some states, you have to like make uh, $100,000, for example, once you pass $100,000, then you have to start 
submitting like sales tax. Or it's so many transactions or something like that. I think it's like, right. It's, it can be either be like a threshold of amount or volume of orders right. or whatever. But yeah, so I settle on Paddle but in their checkout, they don't have like a custom field where if somebody could put in their GitHub username. So then I was like, I'm going to do some like no code, like Zapier or whatever, or is it Zapier? I think it's Zapier. <laughs> some kind of like integration. I was like, but then it's all these dependencies. This is too complicated. Just keep it simple. I'm just make it a download. No GitHub username, no private repo. You know, so after the first few months, I got my routine down did all my research. And I think what kickstarted it was another like Amy Hoy had a ship in six to follow and get you to ship something in six weeks. And actually it ended up just like working out exactly like that. It was like the beginning of January. I think it was when it was supposed to start. So I tweeted early January. I said, okay, so I have this idea. I have a hunch that people would pay to have a proper Ruby dev environment on their Mac based on like I had screenshots of like people complaining, saying how many days it took them. And so I started almost like live tweeting in my progress, kind of, okay, here, and then about the domain name, here it is. And then I was like, well, I need to create a landing page. And this is where 30 by 500 is very helpful, was the whole technique called PDF, pain, dream, fix, is how to use the words that people use from sales safari research and just from my customers. And I was basically looking through all the email interactions I had with people who use their free script to design the copy on the landing page to convert people. And at first I was like, okay, what am I going to use to design the landing page? And I had been using Middleman, but this time I was like, okay, maybe I'll check out Bridgetown. Bridgetown. And uh, yeah, no, it's actually good because I wanted to use Tailwind. Like I said before, I'm not very good at designing. <laughs> Still, Bridgetown had an easy Tailwind integration. Yeah. And so I gave it a shot and it worked. So I bought Tailwind UI, the marketing component, the one that gives you all the different pieces you can put together for a landing page, basically. Yeah, and that was great. That allowed me to just put things together really quickly. And it looks pretty decent. So then the hard part was just like working on the copy. Like, what do I say? What do I call it? You know, of course, I've iterated over time and I got feedback. So one of the great things about 30 by 500 is you get a Slack community and people are always helping each other. And Alex and Amy are also on there. And then for the hosting, I chose Netlify because they have the branches where you can deploy a branch and show somebody like a, it's much easier. So I, that's what I did on the 30 by 500 Slack. I asked people for feedback and then I got great feedback, especially on the pricing. My pricing was very low at first. At first I had like three tiers. I had like basic, plus and prime, seven, 17 and 37. People are like, $7? You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> for like somebody who makes $100 an hour and they can save like four hours or whatever, you know, you should bump it up to like 19 or something. And so I bumped it up to, and then I shut down plus and just make it a basic and prime and then went up to 19 and 49. And that worked. People were still buying. And the main selling point for prime, which didn't exist in the free script. So the free script was a little more than basic. It also it did Rails because remember it was like meant for Rails at first. What I learned is a lot of these scripts, like ThoughtBot's laptop, for example, they assume you're starting with a brand new Mac, like clean, that you don't have anything installed, it's clean, there's nothing wrong with your dev setup because you don't have one yet. But what I learned is, of course, a lot of people already have stuff and they've already tried things before finding my script or Ruby on Mac. And so they have all kinds of stuff, you know, it's stuff already that I, junk in the drawer, right? <laughs> exactly. And you know, with my QA background that maybe I didn't think about until somebody said, hey, your scripts failed at this point. Like, oh, I should. And so like, as I get these real world scenarios from people, I update Ruby on Mac to automatically detect and fix them as much as possible 
which is like one of the unique things about it compared to other scripts. It's like no other script will clean up your dev setup for you. But <laughs> not only that, the main part is that there's a what I call a reset mode. So in case there's some stuff that can't be automatically fixed, you can in one minute safely back up your whole dev setup. That way you still have your shell files in case you had like an all my ZSH or whatever, things like that, or like old Ruby versions. So if you have an old Ruby version that you installed a while back, it'll still work even if you update, but you won't be able to install it from scratch again. So if you do have old Ruby versions, keep them. And so that's one thing that I knew I should back up. And so if you do have them, I'll back it up for you just in case you don't lose it. And so it'll back up basically everything that's related to Ruby, but also your shell starter files and then clean everything, just remove everything. And just figuring out what to remove took a lot of time. I mean, I spent like hundreds of hours on this. And so the reset script is also great, but not only just for cleaning things up, but also for me for testing. Let's say you're a company that has their own homegrown script. Based on my experience working in civic tech, like if somebody has a script, it is rarely tested, especially not on a clean state. They might assume that you already have certain things. And so when you test it, like, oh, it works. But then when you try it on a new employee joins, it fails. And so if you have this reset mode, you can easily like simulate a clean Mac without having to reformat it, which takes hours. That alone saves people hours that they would have spent maybe finding an external hard drive, backing everything up and in case they don't have a backup system in place. And so that reset mode in one minute is the big selling point. And of Prime versus Basic. And then in July of last year, I introduced Ultimate, which has even more time-saving features, but also comes with a free 30-minute consultation because I noticed people would have problems with existing projects, right? So then I make sure like in my FAQs, it's okay, what Ruby on Mac does is it makes sure that you have a proper Ruby environment such that you can create a brand new Rails or Jekyll project. And I have links to like, okay, here are the steps. Here's how you can test it out to see if you have, if you're able to create a brand new Rails project, that means your Ruby environment is set up properly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your existing project will still work if it has outdated gems or Ruby or whatnot, right? So like a lot of people, like FFI is a common gem that doesn't work on Apple Silicon if it's before version, I don't know, like 1.15.4, I forget, or something like that. So a lot of people have old Jekyll sites, for example, or Rails or whatever, and they run bundle install, but it doesn't work because the gem is it is not compatible with Apple Silicon. They have to update it. I mean, in a lot of cases, there is an updated version that does work on Apple Silicon. They just need to update the gem. And so like as I learned about, the, about all these things, I updated the FAQs, but then I would still get people emailing me, hey, I ran your script, but my project is still not working. And so then I was like, okay, well, I need to make this clearer. And so I updated the script so that at the end when it runs, it says, now please make sure to read the post-installation guides and then press O to open them in Safari and it's automatic. You just have to press O and it opens in Safari. You can read them. And then I went a step further and said, like right after the checkout on the thank you page, it explains, you know, that they're going to get an email from Paddle and how to download the script. It says, please also read this whole thing. Once you finish the script, please read the post-installation guides. It will save you a lot of confusion and headaches, especially like around switching versions. That's the other thing is, people end up using the system Ruby and they're like, I'm running gem install or bundle update and it's not working. I'm like, oh, it's because you don't have a .ruby version file. And so I updated the documentation to explain that and also explain that chruby doesn't have like a default, like a global version like other version managers do. And so you have to set a .ruby version file in the project or switch manually, just say chruby, the version you want. Yeah, and since I did that, a lot less people have been emailing me. So like my goal is to like not have to 
respond is to have everything so well documented, but also fixing things automatically, like the dev setup issues that people run into, just to make it as easy as possible. And now, one of the cool things about Ultimate that I just introduced recently is that you can choose your own version manager. So whereas Prime forces you to use CHRuby, with Ultimate, you can choose whichever one you want. You could just set it in a .default manager file, and then you can change it if you're curious, you know, when it, oh, I've been using RVM for years, let me try RBM now or whatever, ASDF. You can do that, just change, and then just have to run the script again. It'll pick up their preference. It'll automatically like remove the old one from the shell startup file, put the new one. The exciting part is Ruby on Mac installs Ruby faster than any other version manager, like using the default settings. Of course, you can tweak them to do the same thing, but you have to know like what settings to pass. And like 99% of users just they never pass any settings. They just type RBF install 2.7.7 or whatever, right? And so because it does it that way, and also it automatically chooses the best settings based on which Ruby version you're using, which RBF does that in a sense where they automatically choose the right OpenSSL version. But by default, they compile OpenSSL themselves, which takes a lot longer than using like the homebrew version, for example. You know, that's one of the things. And so even though you're using your preferred version manager, Ruby on Mac will take care of the installation because it's the fastest and uses the best settings, but it will place it in the right place so that you can then use whichever version manager you want to switch. And so like if you're using RBM or ASDF, which they both use Ruby build for in the background for the installation, the difference is like two minutes. And when I tested it on my M1 Air, like I think Ruby 3.2, it took two minutes with Ruby on Mac versus like four minutes with ASDF or RBM. So like, if you think about it, if you're like a consultancy, like working with clients, upgrading Rails apps, or let's say you install Ruby like once a month or something, a different version of Ruby. So like that's 12 versions. You save two minutes, it's 24. Maybe let's round it up to like 30, make the math easier. So you're saving 30 minutes per year, right? So let's say if you're a competent consultancy, your hourly rate is at least $200 an hour. So you're saving $100 a year, and right now Ultimate costs 109 So like a little over a year, if you recoup the cost, you know, and so one-time cost. That's if you don't have any problems. Right. Yeah, yeah, if you don't have any other problems. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and, that's and, cool. and you don't have to maintain your own, let's say you, you have a script maybe already, or you're thinking of having a script for new engineers to run instead of making them. That's another thing I, I want to do is like send out a survey to see. My hunch is that most companies that hire Ruby engineers don't have, like they just leave it up to the person to set up their Mac themselves with like not just the dev setup, but like all the applications. And so that's the other thing that Ultimate does is it comes with a brew file with like hundreds of apps, casks and fonts. And so you just pick and choose the ones you want and they'll save you so much time just to install all of the applications. But the really cool thing is that it has also customizable YAML files for Mac OS preferences too. Because that's another thing I spend a lot of time, like every time I get a new Mac, I want to set like the trackpad to just tap and not click the date and time because I'm from Morocco. I like it to be 24 hours and all these settings. And then sometimes I don't remember like, where is this again? Especially like the tap to click is like, or tap to drag. It's like, it's not in the keyboard section. It's under accessibility. Like you would never think of that or like turning off autocorrect, auto capitalization, all of those things. And so like with a YAML file, it's just easy to read. There's a link on rubyonmac.dev. You can see all the settings, like how to do them. And so it's just basically just like, use, you know, readable settings. You can just say yes or no, turn on or off for the most part, or for the date and time, you can set the format you want. As I find more things that people want to set and you know, I'll add them. It also has a Git config 
So you can set up like your preferred editor for Git or and your username and your name for the Git commits. And also comes with a default .git config with saying settings that most people want to use. And also a .git git ignore global and things like that. And also a repo is also so a YAML file because a lot of people, whether they're joining a company or themselves, they want to have certain repos on their machines to start working, right? So you just, in the YAML file, you define all the repos you want, the path where you want to put it on your computer. It's a one-time setup. You just do that. And then once you have that set up, you can push these files to your dot .files, for example. And then when you get a new computer, you just run Ruby on Mac. It'll read your settings and then set everything up, including the apps and everything. Depending on how many apps you have, let's say it might be 30 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes versus like at least four hours for the, it could take a whole day to set up a new machine, right? And so that saves a lot of time there too. That's cool. So we'd love to hear, yeah, I guess, are you still on track with your three-year goal? And what do you need to do from here? Last year, my goal was 25K and I beat that. I forget, I ended up with 30 some K, I think last year. Starting in February, so it was about 11 months, I guess. And then this year, my goal is 50K. And ever since I removed the basic option, I only have Prime and Ultimate. I think I made that change at the end of November. So since December, I've been making over 5K per month. So I think on track for 60K. So should be on track to beat my goal this year. But next year, my goal is 100K. So my plans right now are just to do more marketing, more maybe like YouTube videos, even like a demo video to put on the landing page, which right now, I don't know. I've read mixed reviews about videos on landing pages that people don't watch them, but I need to try it before to, to see if it works or not. But I think just in general, just to show how it works, how it compares to other solutions, and then maybe reaching out, like doing direct sales, just basically trying to get the word out there, but also expand my consulting. I know I have a lot of expertise to offer, so maybe just getting more clients. So if anybody's interested, you can look up my services on my personal website. It's monsefbellumani.com, which I know is quite a mouthful. Or you can remember Monfresh. That's what I use. It's actually my DJ name. <laughs> yeah, but that's a story for another time. But yeah, so you can also find me on Twitter. I'm mostly active there, also on, on, under Monfresh. And I have the links to my services on my profile, so you can see the type of consulting services I offer, like Rails upgrades and maintenance, for example, or even like doing an automation audit to see how I can save you money to speed up some of your workflows, your manual tasks or test suites or things like that. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Monsef, your story has really been incredible. Thank you for sharing with us today. I love your business and wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you so much, Monsef. Thank you.